Okay. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Uh, just trust that our time in your word would be not only edifying to us, but magnifying of your glory, uh, satisfying to our soul, uplifting to our hearts, encouraging to us. We're going to talk, Lord, about your blessed nature and the blessings you give to us. And there isn't enough time in the world to cover that topic. And yet, you give us this hour. So we pray that it would be sanctified and consecrated for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in 1 Timothy 6.15. And so, <clears throat> over the next couple of weeks, we're going to slow down. We're going to focus on the second half of verse 15 and all of verse 16. Um, this, this text in the middle of verse 15, Paul starts this, this, what we call a doxology by saying, he who is blessed. And then he goes through verse 16 and it ends at the end of verse 16 where he says, amen. This little chunk of text is what we call doxology which is a liturgical expression of praise to God. And instead of just covering the whole thing in one message, in one general expression of God in different ways, I want to slow down and address each of the expressions of the nature of God and what he is and what he does one week at a time. Um, <clears throat> and so this will probably take a couple of weeks to get through just the one and a half verses, but that's because we'll be covering them, you know, one idea at a time. And as we do that, I think you'll see the value in it because each expression of every aspect of the nature of God that Paul covers in this text is, each one of them by themselves, is an entire doctrine. And if we were to, say, cover one doctrine in the Bible, we couldn't do it in one message. So we're going to just slow down so that we're taking the time to really slowly wade through this doxology, through this expression of praise, because it's so important, because this is all about the nature of who God is. There is nothing more important in your life than who God is. Like, if, if someone asked you, what's the most important thing in your life? You'd be like, Jesus, right? God is the most important, and that would be the right answer. But what is he to you, and what does it matter if you don't know who he is? If you ask me who's the most important human in my life, I'm going to probably tell you it's my wife. And you know why? Because we live together, I know her, she knows me, we're married, we love each other. I could go on and on with all the reasons why that's important, and you guys understand those reasons. But... The only reason she's so valuable to me is because of how I know her and how well I know her and what I know about her. It is knowledge of her. It is relationship that matters. So saying that God is important in your life is one thing, but knowing God is another. And the more you know God, the more that relationship with him will be important. So the value of your relationship with God increases as your knowledge of who God is increases. And here's this, so just consider this in the context of a marriage. Isn't your marriage better off the better you know your spouse? We would all agree yes. So your relationship with God will be better the more you know God. But isn't also your marriage going to be better the better you know yourself? 
Isn't that one of the benefits of marriage? I tell everybody all the time that I call marriage the great sanctifier. Why? Because you're living with a person and you can't pretend to be someone else long enough. You're just going to run out of faking it. You just don't have it in you. Nobody does has the power to live with another human for a lifetime and pretend to be something they're not. In marriage, eventually the true you will come out. Your spouse will see who you are and you will get sanctified. You can't fake it with your spouse. It's not going to work. So the true you is actually revealed in marriage. And in that situation, you are exposed in marriage. And therefore, as a believer, you get sanctified. Because as you're exposed, you realize who you are and things need to change and you need to grow. That's what marriage does. So it's the same thing in our relationship with God. Not only do, does knowing God make our relationship with him better, but by knowing God, ourselves are exposed before him. He reveals who we are and that exposure creates an opportunity for us to be sanctified. So knowing God is so vital, not only to how we feel about him, but how we feel about ourselves and how we know ourselves and what that means to our life and to our sanctification. And so <clears throat> knowing God is massively valuable. And that's why we're going to slow down for this doxology so that we can really dig into who God is, what his nature is like. And today we're going to cover the first part of this phrase in the middle of verse 15. So I'm going to read the entire doxology from the middle of 15 to the end of 16 and then we're just going to cover the first few words. So in verse 15, Paul writes, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, like I said, as a doxology, this is a form of praise, right? Like a structured set of phrases and words that Paul puts together to put it in sort of a liturgical expression that creates an opportunity for us to have something memorable, something we can memorize and express to God at all times. And Paul, this isn't the only time Paul does this. He does this in a few other places. Um, it's also found in Hebrews. Paul does it in, with the Romans as well. And... So this is a text that is kind of a standalone text. You could just take this text out of its context and study it and look at it, and it would be super valuable to you. However, it's in a context, so we have to understand it within its context. And contextually, Paul has just commanded Timothy to, if we were to go back to like verse 11, and, and you read verse 11 through 14 or, or through half of 15, Paul commands Timothy to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love, steadfastness and gentleness. And then he commands him to continue to fight the good fight and to make the good confession and to keep the commands of God until Jesus returns. So that's what we've covered for the last, well, few weeks in Timothy. From there, Paul launches into this praise of God, the exaltation of his nature and character. So what is happening here is that Paul is essentially responding to his own teaching. As he considers the commands he just gave to Timothy, he also considers why these commands are so important. And the reason is because God himself is so important, so valuable, and so worthy. 
Therefore, Paul goes into explaining and praising God with words and expressions that exalt the grandeur and the supremacy of his nature as evidence for why these commands are so important to obey. So essentially, everything that Paul's just taught Timothy, Paul's realization, and I believe this would be a spirit-led, obviously all scripture is, is God-breathed, and Peter says that all scripture is written by the spirit through men. So this is clearly spirit-inspired that after commanding Timothy to pursue righteousness, godliness, love, faithfulness, steadfastness, gentleness, and to continue and to fight the good fight and make the good confession and to hope in the return of Christ and to obey his commands until he does. All of that causes Paul, by the power of the Spirit, to go, just stop and praise the Lord. Just take a moment from that reality and exalt the Father. Exalt God. Praise Him. Take a moment to reflect on who He is. There's a reason why it's important for us to pursue righteousness and godliness and holiness and steadfastness. There's a reason why we should obey His commands. There's a reason we have hope in a future return of Christ. There's a reason to fight the good fight. And the reason is because of who God is. So let's take a moment to think about who God is. That's how the Holy Spirit has moved Paul and then moved Paul so much so to write it in Scripture for us so that we also could slow down at this point and go, whoa, who is this God? Now as much as this text has meaning within its context, it also has meaning on its own. There is a significant amount of value in these words, even when taken from its context, because it simply describes God's nature. And so Paul is writing about God the Father here, not Christ the Son. And we know this because in verse 16, Paul says in this doxology, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And since that's not true of Christ, given that many had seen him both in his earthly ministry and after his resurrection. And Paul has even seen him not only after his resurrection, but after his ascension through several revelations. That means that this doxology is specifically about God the Father, knowing also that God told Moses in Exodus 33:20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Let's just, I know, I know most of you probably have heard that verse more than once in your life. If you grew up in the church, you've probably certainly heard it. As you, you know, you're a child in Sunday school, you probably listened, you know, remember learning all the Old Testament stories. And this is a big story in the Old Testament. When Moses goes to Mount Sinai and goes up on the mountain and talks to God, and God gives him the law for his people. This is a significant point in the history of the world, and certainly the history of Judaism, and certainly the history of the church. And on that mountain... Moses says, show me your glory. And God's like, yeah, you'll die. So that's not going to work. And if we just take a moment to consider the extreme nature of such a statement, man shall not see me and live. Okay. Consider for a moment somebody famous or well-known who you admire. It's not someone you worship Okay, but just someone you admire. Okay, maybe it's like a, a president, a former president, or, 
Um, or maybe it's uh, just maybe one of your favorite like actors or actresses or maybe your favorite author or someone popular or whatever. I don't know. Whoever would be just someone that you would be like, I'd love to meet that person. And it can't be Jesus. That doesn't count. That's not fair. So imagine you get the opportunity to meet that person. Or let's put it in a little different context. Let's say you were put, because this is an example I used, I think, on like maybe Wednesday night or I don't remember. It was one of our Bible studies this week. Imagine you had to step into a ring, a boxing ring, and they put boxing gloves on you. And they said, you're going to fight someone. Who do you not want to fight? <laughs> That's the real question. And I would say, my first answer would be, more than anybody, I would not want to fight Mike Tyson. Still at this age today, I don't care if he's 60 years old. I've seen that guy box literally like recently, and he's still super fast, and I'm certain that he would murder me. And I mean that literally. So I would not want to stand in the ring with him. And my point is that whether you're, you get to meet someone famous that you admire and you'd really get a, love to have a chance to like sit down and have dinner and just ask some questions and talk to them, it'd be awesome to be in their presence, right? There'd be this awe with it. Or if you were to step in the ring with Mike Tyson, there would still be an awe. It'd be terrifying, but it would be awe. And you'd be like, I cannot believe I'm standing in a ring with Mike Tyson and I'm probably about to die. Or that I'm sitting at a table at dinner with my favorite athlete or something like that. In both those cases, you're just going to be kind of in shock kind of in awe, a little maybe stumbling over your words, even a little nervous, super excited, like, I can't believe I'm sitting here with this person and getting this opportunity, or, oh, I can't, you know, just this awe, this experience of awe, like, I can't believe I'm in the presence of this person. They're either amazing or terrifying. Now, that's how we feel about people we don't know who are famous. That's a human being. And they would still make us kind of like uncomfortable with their presence because it'd be so amazing. How much more unimaginable is the presence of God? I mean, if I'm going to step in the ring and I see Mike Tyson over there, I am going to be, I'm probably going to turn white and become terrified. How do you think Moses felt when God showed him his glory? Like, the difference between Mike Tyson and God is infinite. In fact, you could have any famous person that you could put in that place, whether they'd be someone you'd love to meet or someone you'd be terrified to meet or whatever, is they are still a person just like you, and the difference between them and God is literally infinite. So, if you think about the experience of meeting someone famous or someone who would make you feel a little nervous because you'd either be excited. And you compare that to the reality of Moses standing on a mountain saying, God, show me your glory. And God's like, dude, I can't. He's like, you, you couldn't handle it. It would literally kill you. It's too much for the human body, the human mind to absorb. It's incomprehensible. Genuinely. I mean that word very literally. He is incomprehensible. You can't contain the thought of who God is. It's not possible. So to show himself is not possible. Do you realize that this is why Jesus came? 
I mean, this is part of the reason why Jesus came. We needed a tangible expression of God. We needed to meet God, to see God, to know God, to understand God. So part of the incarnation of Jesus into human flesh is, is that we get an expression of God, not an expression, he's not just an expression of God, he is God. We get God in the flesh, a tangible understanding. God has, has uh, we just sang this, condescended down into human flesh so that we could know him in a way that we could not otherwise. Otherwise, we'd all be running to Israel, climbing up Mount Sinai, going, God, can I, get a, can I see some of that glory? And God passes by Moses and just lets him see the tail end of his glory because God can't expose the fullness of his glory to Moses because he would die. Just comprehend that for a moment as we try to take this idea of God as blessed and try to put it within the mind of within the human mind, within the scope of humanity, within the scope of our ability to conceive of who God is and what he's like. And only by God's grace has he given to us a revelation of himself in scripture. And he tells us a bunch of realities about himself. And this doxology is one of those expressions of these realities about who he is. But if God were to be genuinely and fully expressive about who he is in the totality of who he is, well, that's not possible for us to receive because it would require an infinite amount of time to reveal the infinite amount of who he is his glory is infinite his love is infinite his all all aspects of who god is is infinite everything about him is eternal it is there is no end to his love his, the depths of his love are infinite the depths of his compassion are infinite the 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 span of his sovereignty is infinite. And this is why our blessing from God is eternal life, because it will take an infinite amount of time to understand and absorb and learn and love and enjoy an infinite God. So we don't get this opportunity in this life because it would kill us to really see God for who he truly is, to really understand the fullness of his nature and character. And though he gives us so much about himself, so much in the word about God, that it is inexhaustible in this lifetime. And all it is is one book. Well, a series of books, in a collection of books, actually. But in this Bible, we have more than enough, more than enough for a lifetime to learn about God. Nobody in the history of the world has exhausted the Bible. No single person has exhausted the truths about God and learned everything there is to know about God from Scripture and then to consider that beyond Scripture, there is an infinite amount of glory that God has yet to reveal to us for in an infinite amount of time should help us understand that there is a reason why Paul has to pause and say, let's take a moment to express praise to who this God really is. And, and absorb for a second that this is a God who man cannot see and then continue to live because he is infinite. But even in that, we must also include the totality of our biblical theology and understand that even though Paul is referring to the Father here, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is fully God. So he's talking about the Father here, but Jesus is also God, and therefore he also possesses this same nature. 
And Jesus is also worthy of the same praise for having the same character and attributes and nature as being holy one with the Father. And we know this because Colossians 1.19 says of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And Colossians 2.9 also says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So though this is praise to the Father, a Father whom we cannot see and live, if we were to see him and who is infinitely great, so also is Christ. And this does not, the fact that Paul is talking about the Father specifically does not detract from Jesus receiving the same degree of praise from his bride, his church. So let's work through this doxology, one truth at a time, to understand the nature of God and see why he is worthy of such praise. And we're going to look at just the first few words here. And Paul says in verse 15, he who is blessed. Now this is the only part of this text that we'll cover, but next week we'll address his sovereignty. And there is a lot of truth packed into this one word, blessed. And you'll notice that I'm saying blessed, not blessed. If you were to say like Google this and hit the little sound button and have Google read it, this word back to you, they would say blessed. And I'm saying blessed because, well, I'll explain in a second. So we'll get to that. But the word blessed here is an adjective. And an adjective identifies something about a noun. So it kind of clarifies a noun. It gives other new or important information about a noun. In this case, the noun is God. Meaning an identifying reality about God is that he is blessed. And I clarify that blessed is an adjective because we often use this word as a verb, like to bless. And God does bless as an action or a verb, and we receive his blessings. And scripture also identifies us, his church, as blessed. Not a verb, not just blessed, but blessed. Just like in this text, an adjective describing our very nature as his children. Do you see the difference between the verb, which is an action, and the adjective, which conveys an identity? Meaning when you are a child of God, you carry an identifiable truth about your new nature, and the identifiable truth is that you are blessed. It is not something that is happening to you, it is who you are. That is how Paul is using the word to describe God. That who he is, is blessed. I think it would be helpful to point out now uh, that I've already brought it up that we say this word in two different ways. Blessed and blessed. Um, I do believe that it would probably be accurate just to say blessed and to always use the word that way, but I want to clarify this. If I say that I am blessed, then you would assume that I mean I am being or have received an action onto me that makes me say I'm blessed. Meaning I'm referring to an action or a verb. But if I say I am blessed, you would assume that I'm describing my nature or my position. It's still something that was done to me, but I'm not describing the action that was done to me, but rather the new nature that I am since that action was done to me. So the way we say them makes them sound different because of our English language. So this is not a matter of biblical clarification. This is rather, it's like a distinction, this distinction between blessed and blessed 
is a matter of how we use English when we're talking about these biblical truths. So it's neither right nor wrong to say it either way. That's not even the point. But I do believe it's helpful to consider that how we say it can often convey whether we are expressing the word as a verb, that's something that's being done, or an adjective about who we are. So I'm going to use both, and I'm going to go back and forth so that you understand whether I'm using it in one or the other ways. So this clarification about this being an adjective and not a verb is important because if we understand this word not as an adjective but as a verb or an action, then that would have to mean that God is being blessed by someone or something else, which is not what Paul's conveying because that would place God in submission to someone else who can bestow blessing on him. Now, little caveat, scripture does say that we can bless the Lord. Like Psalm 16, 7 says that I bless the Lord. So there is a way in which people who are not an authority over things or beings that are not an authority over God can bless God. But that is not authority over him. That is our response to the blessing he's given us. It's essentially our way of returning joy to God. But we only think of blessed as a verb, typically. That's kind of how we use it most of the time because that's how we experience God's blessings. So we could naturally and incorrectly attribute the same kind of logic to God being blessed. So to identify God as having the nature of blessed instead of the idea of him being blessed by another helps us understand how this is a marker of his nature rather than something he's receiving from some other being. So, what does this mean that God is blessed? Well, the Greek word for blessed here literally means happy. So, God is happy. Right? I, 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 I think... I don't know what your thoughts about God are. I just know my own. Like when you close your eyes and you pray and you position yourself before God or you think about his nature, like what comes to mind? Is he happy? Is he just like smiling, joyful? Is he frowning, stern? Is he like, what do you want now? Or is he like, how dare you enter my presence? Or is he like, come child, come. I mean, what is your perception of who God is? I'd be willing to bet that every single one of us has a skewed and misguided perception of who God is when we think about him with our eyes closed, thinking about who God is. We all have a faulty version of God in our head because our sin taints our version of perfection. And like I said earlier, we can't even fathom the reality of who God is. So of course, it, we're going to be somewhat inaccurate in our understanding of who he is. And then our life experiences and our traumas and our hardships and our sins and all kinds of things we've been through in our life shapes how we view God. Our parents shape how we view God. How your dad treated you is going to shape how you view God. I take my role as father very important because I'm like, I am my children's representation of who God is. It is my responsibility to be as much like God in nature and character, I'm sorry, and more in like uh, righteousness and in holiness as I can so that my sons will see that's what a good father is and that's what God is like. And obviously, I'm going to be imperfect in that. But that's my hope. So, 
All these things shape how we view God. And when we think about how we view God, it's important to realize that there is a reality about who God is that maybe some of us are missing out on. And that is the fact that God is endlessly and eternally and forever, without pause, happy, joyful, satisfied, pleased. Because God is not dependent. So there's this thing called dependence. It's a psychological term that we use that expresses this idea about how children relate to the parents and how parents relate to their children. Um, if children are in a home that is highly tenuous and stressful and uh, the parents constantly overreact to their children's behavior and parents get crazy and angry and mad and yell and scream and lose their temper and things like that, those children are going to learn, without even realizing they're learning it, a behavior. They're going to learn a pattern. They're going to go, hey, every time I screw up, my parents get upset and, 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 and when they get upset and they lose their temper, they lose their cool and they overreact and they yell at me, there's no peace in this house. So in order to keep peace in this house, I, the child, have to make sure that I do everything I can to keep mom and dad happy. If I can keep mom and dad happy, then they won't lose their cool and there'll be peace in the house. So now the child has an inappropriate understanding of their role in the family. Now the child has... The parents have created dependence. The child is now depending on themselves to create peace in the home. When the reality is that the child's behavior should be irrelevant to the parent's satisfaction in who they are. Doesn't mean that you don't have a reaction to children's behavior, but that how the children behave doesn't affect the peace in the home because the adult is so mature that they can handle the misbehavior of the children in such a mature way that the children realize no matter how I behave, my parents are stable and they're always satisfied within themselves and there is always peace in my home. Even if there's chaos, they still bring peace. That is what a healthy family looks like and that is designed that way because God's that way. Your behavior doesn't affect how God is. Now, the Bible does tell us that our sin does grieve the spirit, so God does feel feelings about the way you behave, but doesn't affect his stability, doesn't affect his status, doesn't affect his nature. He is always satisfied. He's always happy, always joyful within himself. And so how you behave isn't going to throw God off kilter. Because he just is happy. And the reason you can't throw God off with your behavior and make him suddenly not happy, even if he's displeased with your behavior, he's still satisfied. There's nothing that's going to take, him, take that away from him. We have to understand the fullness of who God is in all of Scripture. This, what this word blessed means when it says that God is happy is essentially means that God is one who is by nature happy. Or a better way of describing it is this. God is by nature fully and completely satisfied within himself. God is by nature fully and completely satisfied 
within himself. That is what it means that he is blessed. That joy and satisfaction, unlike us, is not something that he has to get or he has to maintain or he has to search for or fight for. He just is. It's something that he always is because he is always the same. He is always infinitely wonderful and therefore he is always infinitely happy with himself. You're not going to change God's happiness. You're not going to make him happier and you're not going to make him less happy because if you could make him happier, then that would mean there is a lack of satisfaction in God, a lack of joy within himself. You can't complete God. We fulfill God's will and what that does is magnify his joy in himself by magnifying his glory. And so understanding that aspect of God is important because that's essentially what it means when Paul says he is the blessed, that, that he is happy and his happiness is self-sustaining within himself, set apart from his relationship with us, whether in relationship with us or without relationship with us, nothing changes God's satisfaction within himself. And God's satisfaction within himself is so true and so powerful and so real that God actually begets, and I'm using that word begets because there's literally no word in, in our language that could express the reality of the existence of the Son or the existence of the Spirit other than they are eternal. But the idea that the Father has about himself is so real and so true that it begets another person, the Son. God's expression, God's self exaltation, God's self-satisfaction and self-joy and self-happiness within his own nature is so real and so powerful and God's, God is so magnificently unlike us that when God has an idea or a thought, he can make that idea or that thought become a reality. Hence, creation. He's the only one who can create out of nothing, what we say, ex nihilo. He's the only one who can take nothing and turn it into something. When we create something, it's always with something else. You paint a picture, you used a canvas, you used a paintbrush, you used paint. They already existed. You could create an idea. Oh, I'm going to think of this idea no one's ever thought of. Guess what you used? The brain that God gave you. There is no way that we can create from nothing. Only God can do that. Because God is the only one who can have an idea and turn idea into an existent reality from a non-existent thing. Or non I guess it couldn't be a thing if it doesn't exist. So he's the only one who can go from non-existence to existing with ideas and turn ideas into reality. And so God has an idea about himself and he goes, whoa, I am pretty amazing. In fact, I'm the most amazing thing that there is. I am, and then if I were to just sit here, I could spend the next, the rest of a sermon just describing the nature and character of God. And then I'd come back next week and I would just continue describing the nature and the character of God. And then I'd come back the next week and keep describing the nature and the character of God. And we could do that every single Sunday and just stay right here in this verse till the end of our lives and we would still never even tap the top of the iceberg in God's fullness of nature. And this very God fully knows the full depths of himself. 
and yet it would take us a lifetime to barely tap into it. And he understands all of it. And his self-evaluation is, I am the most worthy and only worthy thing of praise. I am the most valuable being that exists. I am the greatest. There is nothing beyond me. All that exists exists because I determined that it exists. And I could go on and on describing all of this. And when God thinks about that, he goes, I'm worthy of praise. And I am so great. I am self-worth. I am self-satisfying. I'm satisfied with myself. And the idea of himself causes God to, I'm going to use the word create, and it's a terrible word and I don't mean it, create a second person called the son. That's why I use the word beget. He begets the son. That's the word that Jonathan Edwards uses. Because this idea that God has about himself, he has to express the satisfaction and joy he has about himself in some way toward another person. So there's a second person of the Trinity called the Son. And the Father looks at the Son and he goes, hey, you're me. It's like that uh, Spider-Man meme. You guys seen that? You know what I'm talking about? You, 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 you're me. Hey, you're me. So, like, that's how... <laughs> I can't believe I just reduced the nature of God to a Spider-Man meme. But... Uh, <laughs> Nevertheless, um, the father looks at the son and he just goes, you are me. That's me. Totally incomplete. There's nothing lacking, not even an ounce, not even the tiniest sliver of myself is lacking in the son. He is perfectly me, yet in a distinct person called the son, whom is not the father, but is the same completely and now the father has a person upon whom to pour out his joy and satisfaction himself so instead of just looking at himself going i'm great and like hugging himself and going like i'm so happy by myself there isn't that because the father has a son who is identical to the father and he gets to express his love for himself upon the son who is like himself and the son goes yeah i am great because you're great father and the son gets to love on the father and the father returns the love back in the son and the son returns his love back in the father and it goes back and forth and back and forth and jonathan edwards suggests and i think this is true because of romans chapter five jonathan edwards suggests and actually it was a guy before jonathan edwards called by the name of cotton mathers um, and this is hundreds of years ago. And by the way, I learned all this from a good friend of mine, and I was totally blind to this truth. And then he said, you should read this thing from Jonathan Edwards. I read it, and my like, entire theology just expanded instantly. That the Father and the love, as they express love for one another, as they look upon each other and go, we are everything. Everything and anything and all things and all so satisfying and so perfect and so good and we are just totally satisfied with an eternity of this reflective praise and love for one another and the father loves his own nature so much that he loves his son who is the expression the exact imprint of his nature and the love between the father and the son is so real because only God can ha have an idea or something that he experiences or thinks about or whatever and that idea become a reality, right? Just like the, he begets the son, so also the love between the father and the son begets the spirit. That the love that the father and the son share with one another is the Holy Spirit. God is love. 
that the love between the Father and the Son is so profound as an expression of how profound they are by nature that the love is a third person. Now, I say beget. It doesn't mean they were born or they were created. It's not like God was by, the Father was there by himself. He's like, I'm going to make another person. There is never a moment where the Son didn't exist or the Spirit didn't exist. They've always existed. Wrap your mind around that. I don't know how, to be honest. Thinking about eternity past, when did God start? Our existence is all about things starting. We have no, I, I don't know. I'm not going to go there. But still, nevertheless, and, and we see this in Romans 5 because it says God poured out his love to us in his spirit, right? And so uh, you think about the Father. So, so when I imagine the Father and the Son, I don't know how to imagine this visually because Jesus says that God isn't a man. He says that the Father is spirit in John chapter 4. And so I can't think of God as a man even though that's the only way I can fathom him. I don't know how else to like frame him, right? Except for maybe this cloud or this orb of existence. But that's not true either because I'm just putting a physical feature to a God who has no physical features but is spirit, so how do we do that? And I, I don't know how. So all I imagine is there's the father and there's a son and they're looking at each other like, ah, this is amazing. You're so amazing. No, no, you're amazing. No, you're amazing. Like, and, and none of them are rejecting the praise because they understand the value of their worth. And the spirit is going back and forth like, you're both amazing. We're all amazing. Like, it's just this huge, perfect love fest of joy and satisfaction within himself. Meaning, he does not need you. He is totally satisfied in and of himself. No need for you. So, why do we call ourselves blessed? Well, let me summarize this really quick. I'm going to skip this entire paragraph and I'm just going to say it like this. The fact of the matter that God in that eternal love fest between Father, Son, and Spirit would say, let's take a break. I'm going to leave this dwelling. I'm going to enter human flesh humbled, considering being like you, Father, would be not something I can grasp in this life on the, when I go down there to that earth after we create it. And we're going to save people. And not only are we going to save them, once we save them, we're going to bring them here with us in the middle of this love fest. And we're going to perfect their mind and their hearts and their, we're going to give them new bodies because they're going to need them so that in their new bodies they can dwell in our presence because they can't with those sinful bodies. So we've got to make new ones. We're going to kill the old and make new and we're going to bring them into our presence. And we're going to put them right in the middle of us. And they are going to look at us and be in awe. Literally like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Speechless. In awe going, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. And God's going to go, yes you do. And you're going to be trapped in the greatest trap of all time, which is this massive expression of love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you're never going to feel like the odd guy out. 
You're never going to feel like, what am I doing here? Well, that's Jesus. He's God. You're God. I'm not God. I'm just this thing that just kind of got thrown in the middle here, but I'm just happy to, to be accepted. But that, that's partially true. But the reality is God's going to look at you and he's going to say, but I don't see you. I see my son. You know that love fest I was having for an eternity in the past with my son? When I looked at my son, I said, you're me. Oh, you're so satisfying. And it's so, such a prominent and powerful love for myself in my son that it begot a third person whom is God himself. That love is so powerful begets God. That's because love is God and God is love in that context and he's going to look at you, you, you measly little human. And he's going to go, all I see is me. All I see is me. All I see is my son. That's insane. That God is going to look at you and love on you as if he's looking at himself in his son. That is because when God sees you, I mean, he obviously can see who you individually, who you really are. He made you, he knows you, obviously. But he's going to see the perfect righteousness of Jesus and you are going to be equally as valuable to him as his son. And equally as what? Blessed. If that isn't what we describe as blessed, then I don't know what is. God's self-sustaining satisfaction, pleasure, joy, and happiness that he has within himself, he shares with us, blesses us with his blessedness. His blessed nature is given to us graciously so that we could participate in the blessing. And that's only possible if he is on his own, without any help, without any other source, without any other being, without any other things, self-sufficiently satisfied within himself. Now, not only does the word itself, blessed, convey that God alone contains blessedness, but the text itself actually gives us a hint that this is true. Paul says in verse 15, he who, this is really important, notice this tiny little distinction, he who is the blessed, the blessed. That article, the, before blessed, singularizes the one who is being identified here. We know that it is God who is being identified. So now, that this, so, so now with this article, the, before blessed, we can conclude that in some way or somehow, God alone is considered blessed in a singular or solo or solitary way. Others, like us, can also call ourselves blessed. And we could call ourselves the blessed, even. Just like God is identified here as the blessed. But if we were to call ourselves the blessed, we would understand that to mean that compared to other humans who are not blessed, we are the ones whom God has blessed. So when we call ourselves the blessed, we are not saying or conveying that we are equal with God, but that by his grace... He who is the blessed has blessed us, making us, compared to the rest of the world, the blessed. And there are only two other places in the New Testament where the article the is used to describe God as the blessed. One is in Mark 14, 61, where the high priest is questioning Jesus and he asks Jesus, are you the Christ, 
the son of the blessed. And the only other time is earlier in this very same letter, 1 Timothy 1.11, where Paul says, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now the lack of use of this article, the, reveals the significance of its use here to clarify that God himself is the holder and arbiter of blessedness because he alone is possessor and producer of all blessings. So what does this mean to us? Well, I'll break it down for you in three simple things. I'm not a three-point sermon type of guy, but I really like this idea, and I'll give you three things. I'm going to tell you um, there's something that I want you to think, and then there's something I want you to feel, and then there's something I want you to do. So we're going to think about what we should, how should we think, how should we feel, and what should we do. So I want you to think about the grandeur and supremacy of God. It's vital to understand this aspect of God's nature, that he is completely enough for himself, because it allows us to understand that we are not necessary, as I was saying before, and to recognize that only God is necessary, unless this very God determines that we are necessary, necessary, which he does specifically for his glory, meaning Our necessity only exists because it serves God's necessity. God is necessary even if if we did not exist. He's still necessary. But we are only necessary because God determines it to be so. And he determines that the necessity of the church is to bring him glory. So, that doesn't change the fact that God does not need us because God is the only being that is self-sustaining and self-sufficient within himself, whereas we are dependent on his will to exist and to live and to be blessed and blessed. God's determination to bless us exalts his grace that despite not needing us, us not being a necessity, he chooses to make us a necessity for his will by ordaining sin, saving us from that sin, and thus blessing us, which magnifies his glory by satisfying us as an expression of his blessed nature. And if you think about that, it should produce a feeling. And this is the feeling I want you to feel. It's joy. John Piper said, God is most glorified in us and we are most satisfied in him. God pleasing us, satisfying us, or producing our joy is always a product of him somehow blessing us with something we do not deserve. We receive, or to receive life, though we deserve death, ought to be a lifelong satisfier. To know that we deserve to die, but yet we are given life, that should keep you sustained in joy forever, creating in us an endless happiness that that this life on this earth is literally the worst it's ever going to be for us. And, And more than that, if we take the time to think about who God is and take time to study in Scripture who God is, and we find him to be the ultimate being, someone we want to be with more than anything or anyone, And we think about the fact that he has made that possible for us and that he's done it for us ought to make us the happiest people on the planet. There's nothing that could take your joy away. 
No one's taking your joy away. You're giving it away. You're choosing not to have joy. Because joy is fully yours. All you got to do is think. And when we grapple with the nature of God and discover his infinitely unfathomable grandeur and supremacy, that in his fullness he is not only beyond comprehension, but that this very unimaginable supreme being has determined to bestow on us his grace to bless us as if we are his own child ought to be enough satisfaction not only for this lifetime but for eternity. It ought to make you endlessly happy. Eternally happy, infinitely happy. Joy is more than just a feeling. I know that. It's not just a feeling, but it ought to be the primary feeling as God's blessing. And the more you think about his nature and his grandeur and his supremacy and his sovereignty and his greatness and his goodness and his kindness and his love, his patience and his... All the things that he is. The more you can grasp the infinite chasm between him and us, which magnifies his grace to span that chasm through Christ to save us, to make us his own, to love us and to bless us, the more we can think about that, the more joy you will feel. The more joy you will feel. And the reason you will feel joy is because you will feel and be satisfied. Because that's what God does. And if he is enough for himself and his standards are perfection, he's definitely enough for you. So if we think about God this way, and that makes us feel joy, so we think about the grandeur and supremacy and the greatness and the glory of a perfect and loving, awesome God, and that makes us feel joy and satisfaction in this very God, then that should lead us to certain actions. And what would those actions be? Well, I'll put them in the words of Paul that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11 or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. What I want you to do is to do what God does. I want you to imitate God. God has blessed us, and since he is infinite and he is the source of blessing, that means his blessedness is infinite, meaning we will never run out of blessedness. We will never not be his blessed, and we will never not be blessed by him. Therefore, freely and unapologetically and without hesitation, bless others as you have been blessed. We can't bless others the same way God blesses us, but we can show them the blessed one by sharing our blessing with them. What that means, what that looks like in your life, and I'm going to be very general and vague here because I can't get totally specific about all the details of life, but that means show them Christ, give them Christ, preach Christ, share Christ, live like Christ, talk like Christ, think like Christ, obey like Christ, sacrifice like Christ, endure like Christ, and be satisfied in our Father like Christ was satisfied in our Father. Because nothing says Christianity stinks more than unhappy Christians 
who are pouting and whining and complaining and crying and gossiping and throwing a fit and not getting their way and acting like babies and being immature and choosing sin and talking dirty and being trash that does not look like Jesus and it doesn't draw people to the blessed one. It's a terrible image of who God is because God is perfectly satisfied within himself and if he's enough for himself, he's more than enough for me and if I get to have him, I ought to be the happiest person in the world. It doesn't matter what's going on in my life. How hard it is, how painful it is, how great the suffering is, whether it is cancer or the death of your child, which to me is the worst thing that could happen in this life, is to lose a child. I can't think of a worse pain. It kills me just to think about it. I can't imagine what it would actually feel like. I don't think I can, I don't think I can imagine it. I just, I just can't. I don't even want to think about it. Yet, what I know to be true is even in that reality, God is enough to satisfy me and to give me joy. It doesn't mean I wouldn't cry. It doesn't mean I wouldn't feel pain. It doesn't mean it wouldn't hurt. Of course it would hurt. It would kill me. It would destroy my flesh. And all of that would be to serve one great, grand, and perfect purpose, which is to realize I have Christ and he's enough. That is the whole point of being a follower of Jesus, is you have everything you need to be satisfied. That is the kind of Christianity people need to see. The kind of Christianity that through the tears of death, you can declare, but I have Christ, and he is enough. And in him I am satisfied alone. His will be done and his kingdom will come, and I will trust in him. That's the kind of Jesus people need to see. And that will bless others, because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. To do this is your way of blessing others because it points people to Jesus. And when people find Jesus, they find God, and in finding God, they find every blessing they need. Eternal life and eternal joy and eternal satisfaction in the only one who can give them that. So by blessing others, you are giving them the best gift. You are giving them God himself. You are pointing them to the source of your joy. This will not only satisfy them, but it will satisfy you. And I say that because it's like a referral program. You know, when those companies say, hey, if you get some people to join our company, we'll give you a little benefit. We'll put, slide you five bucks or something. Give you a discount on next month's bill or something like that. It's a referral program. God's like, you bring other people to me and I will satisfy you even more. And where do we get that from? John 13, 17. If you, this is Jesus. If you know these things, which we now know because we just talked about them. Blessed are you if you do them. Okay, guaranteed blessing. If I live in the satisfaction of Jesus Christ despite what happens in my life and I live Christ, talk like Christ, follow Christ, obey Christ, think like Christ, sacrifice like Christ, endure like Christ, and be satisfied like Christ, if I do all this Christ-likeness and I do it for others, for the benefit of others, and for my own satisfaction in God, I'm blessed. That's a promise. That's a promise from Jesus in John 13, 17. And not only that, but James 1, 25, he says, and this is great, listen to this. 
being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. That's a pretty sweet promise. Think about his grandeur, feel his joy, and bless others with it. Let's pray. You are the blessed Father, the one who is satisfied within himself and satisfied to satisfy us. And we are satisfied in you. And you fill us with joy. Now we don't always live that joy out and that's part of our journey. It's part of the sanctification. But we want it. So make it real. Cause joy. Prepare us for hard things. And help us to practice joy by being so satisfied in you at all times that nothing can make us waver from our confidence in who we are in Christ. Thank you that you have blessed us and made us the blessed in you, that you have revealed the blessed reality of your nature to us so graciously. We don't deserve it, but you do it. And we are happy to receive it. And then we just want to give back to you what you've given to us, which is joy in you. You love your church, God, in ways that I could never understand. You love them better than I can, so help me love them like you. You lead them better than I can, so lead them. Teach them. Humble them and then exalt them. Love us, protect us, guide us in God. We mean this with all our heart and with every reality and truth behind this word. We ask that you would bless us for your glory so that we would be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, amen.